Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, I know we're trying to kind of shake off the, the tiredness, but um, I'm hoping, hopeful that the, what we're going to be looking at this morning uh, in God's Word will be refreshing, restoring, exhilarating to us. Um, if you remember, we, we left off last night with the importance, thinking about the importance of personally trusting Jesus. Um, it is very dangerous to live on the borrowed faith of your parents or your youth leaders or your Bible study leaders. Um, God, uh, you know, when you stand before God one day, it, it, the question he's going to ask you is not, what did your parents do with me? What did your youth pastor do with me? What did your crew leader do with me? But what, what did you do with me? Did you believe? Did you put your faith in me? Did you follow me? And so I want to think about, we're moving from trusting Jesus to following Jesus, moving from this idea of how you become a Christian to how you live as a Christian. And I'm going to, uh, we're going to think about it in kind of three points. So um, if you're a note taker, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you the three points right now uh, to kind of tease where we're going, and then we'll start uh, walking through. So, so first of all, for point number one, you're a disciple, count the cost. You're a disciple, count the cost. Number two, you're a theologian, become a good one. You're a theologian, become a good one. And number three, you're a Christian, submit to a church. You're a Christian, submit to a church. So you're a disciple, count the cost. You're a theologian, become a good one. And you're a Christian, submit to the church. This, I'm arguing, is the shape of the Christian life. This, I'm arguing, is what it looks like practically, daily, to follow King Jesus. So first of all, you're a disciple. Count the cost. I'm going to begin reading. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And I'm just going to put in a little plug for using physical Bibles. Reading your Bible on a screen is far better, infinitely better, than not reading your Bible at all. Okay? But... I want to um, encourage you all in a, in a digital, screenified age to be old school when it comes to one book, and that's the most important book you own, and to actually handle it physically, to open it up, to engage with it. The greatest sound that your pastor, if he's a faithful pastor and is preaching the Word of God, the most gratifying sound he could ever hear is the sound of Bible pages turning. Another good, um, uh, 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 beautiful sight for a pastor who preaches the Word of God is that he often sees the tops of people's heads because they're staring in their laps at the Word of God. Because at the end of the day, it's not the pastor's wisdom or ingenuity or clever stories or spiritual tidbits that are going to effect life change. It is the eternal and all-sufficient Word of God. All right, Luke 14. Uh, we are going to read starting in verse 25. 
Now large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Just pause here for a second. I want you to notice something in verse 25. Luke 14, 25. It says, large crowds were going along with with him. Or maybe your translation says, great crowds accompanied Jesus. In other words, Jesus was popular. He, He had a sea of fans. And I imagine that most of those fans liked being safely kind of at the margins. Maybe this describes some of you, actually. Safely at the margins, which means that you're close enough to see the action, but you're far enough to where you can make a quick exit if need be. And I definitely don't think these crowds were expecting to hear Verses 26 and 27, I just read the beginning of it. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I wonder what the reaction was like to this. I mean, just try to climb back into that scenario. And imagine hearing a, you know, Jewish rabbi on the scenes speaking with this kind of audacity. I mean, maybe there was awkward silence, kind of a, did I just, did you just hear what I thought I heard? Did we hear him correctly? Maybe there was a sense of disillusionment that were, that was settling in, sort of a, all right, this This whole miracle working thing has been interesting and entertaining, but the miracle worker is going a little too far. He's taking himself a little too seriously. But I want to focus especially on what comes next, verses 28 and following. Look what Jesus then says, Luke 14, 28. For which of you... For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost, count the cost, to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, there's a lot in these verses that I think is easy to misconstrue, to misunderstand, but the central thrust, the central point is clear. We may not like it, but it's not complicated. Jesus is saying, look around, everyone. He's saying to the sea of faces, look around as, as far as your eyes can see, 
I have plenty of respecting admirers. I have more than enough fans. I'm looking not for fans, but for followers. I'm looking for those who are willing to sit down and ponder whether it's really worth it to them to follow me for the long haul. Not just when it's easy, not just when you're at fall retreat, but whether you are willing to take up your cross and follow me until the day that either I split the skies and return to earth or the day that you go into the ground and if you're in Christ, see me face to face. The road of discipleship, Jesus is saying. And that word discipleship is just a long word that means following Jesus. So discipleship is your personal following Jesus. Uh, discipling is helping someone else follow Jesus. So it's the same kind of word group, but, the, but the, the word there is disciple, right? A follower, a student, a pupil. He's saying this road of discipleship, of followed, following me, Hey, full disclosure, I love you too much to pull a bait and switch, so I'm just going to tell you what it's going to be like. The road of following me is not lined with roses. In fact, if you look carefully, you'll probably see some splinters from crosses born. You're excited, Jesus is saying, about this adventure, this journey, this spiritual life but are you aware that it's a march unto death, death to self? Think about what you're signing up for. Examine your motives. He, again, he's saying, I love you enough to warn you up front and to say that joining my team, my kingdom army, enlisting in my regiment is not for you if you don't plan on treasuring me above all else, about every, above everything that is most dear to you. And if you haven't applied a calculator to your heart and truly counted the cost of following me. When Jesus says, you need to hate your mother and brother and sisters, he's, he's speaking in a hyperbole, which is a literary device. It's, he obviously doesn't mean literally you need to hate these people, but he means that your love for him should be so supreme and exclusive that it looks like hate by comparison. That your loves are rightly ordered. The ancient African theologian Augustine, uh, 1,500 years ago, talked about how sin is a matter of having disordered loves. Remember last night I was saying that an idol is not a bad thing, but it's a good thing that you've turned into an ultimate thing? Well, Augustine was getting at the same thing. He was saying that we're not just thinking creatures. We are loving creatures. We love certain things. And the problem with sin is that we end up having our loves out of place. We, we love certain things more than we should love God. And the process of becoming a Christian and growing in Christ-likeness is that your loves start to be reordered with God at the top. You see, at the center of Christianity, and we talked about this last night, you will not find a ladder. If you go into a Christian bookstore, 
they are not selling necklaces with a little ladder pendant. A ladder is the symbol of every other religion. Earning your way to God. Earning your way to nirvana or to some higher plane of reality. No, the symbol of Christianity is not a ladder, or to use a more modern um, image, it's not a treadmill. It is a bloody cross. But the symbol of Christianity is it's not a ladder, but it's also not it's not a couch. That's, you know, you don't see couch pendants either. Jesus is saying, I don't need any more fans, admiring onlookers, safe on the margins. Hell, friends, hear me. Hell is filled with former Jesus fans. What he's after are followers. There's a very misleading suggestion suggestion that you may have heard before, and that's that you can somehow have Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. Maybe you've heard those words. If you've not, maybe you can understand the sentiment, right? I've prayed a prayer. I've, I've walked an aisle. I've made a decision. So Jesus is my Savior. He's my get-out-of-hell-free get pass, but he's not my treasure, as we talked about last night. He's not my King. He's not my Lord. Well, that is a lie from, from the pit of hell. I, I can't think of anything that the satanic powers would rather have you believe than that. I mean, do you, let's just think about what, that, what, you're, what that's actually saying. It, that's saying, don't love him, pursue him, walk with him, submit to him, or enjoy him. Just use him to get to heaven. Just use him to get to heaven. Treat him like someone in a toll booth not like a spouse who sacrificed everything to come and rescue you. After I graduated uh, from JMU 15 years ago, I went on stint in East Asia. I'll talk a little bit more about it tonight. Um, but over there, we would actually try to talk people out of their decisions to profess Christ. Now, of course, at the end of the day, we wanted people to come to Christ. That's why we were there. But in that culture... It's, it's a face-saving culture, a very respectful culture, a hospitable culture. And so when you tell someone over there about Jesus and how to be made right with God, you sometimes are going to have someone who just sort of nods their head and agrees with what you're saying and says, you know, the, the words in the booklet just as a way of being respectful and not embarrassing you. And so we would really try to uh, focus on passages like the parable of the, the soils, sometimes called the parable of the sower. You know, you know this from the Gospels where, where there's, there's a, a, a seed scatterer, a sower, and he, he throws the seed, which is representing the Word of God, on all different types of soils, which represents different types of human hearts. And there's the rocky soil where the birds just come and immediately eat up the seed and it doesn't take root. There is the fruitful soil, where the, where the word of God takes root and becomes implanted and produces a crop, 30, 60, 100 fold. But there are two in the middle, the, 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 the thorny soil and the rocky soil, where the person, to use crew lingo, they pray to receive Christ. They, they, it says, Jesus says they receive the word of God with joy, 
but they end up not lasting until the end because either suffering comes into their life and it leads them away from Christ, or prosperity comes into their life and it leads them away from Christ. So whether it's adversity or prosperity, they don't last until the end. Guys, this is a sobering parable. You can find it in Matthew 13 as well as um, in the other Gospels. This parable, do you realize Jesus is saying that three out of the four types of people represented, the types of hearts represented, pray to receive Christ. Only one endures to the end and is saved. Following Christ in this world is, has never been easy, but it's never, I don't think, been more challenging than it is in America today. The, the Word of God has always been offensive, but never in America as much as it is today. See, in previous decades in this country, being a, a Christian, a church-going person was an asset on a social resume. Today, it is a liability. In previous decades, uh, lots of people would have viewed this book as outdated and silly, but today, that's a quaint perspective. No, you know, you're lucky if someone views this book as outdated and silly. Most people today, increasingly, view this book as downright dangerous and harmful. All this means is that if you're, what all this means is that if you find living the Christian life easy, just always easy, then maybe it's not the Christian life you're living. But even though it's not easy, I'm here this weekend to tell you it is worth it because Jesus is worth it. Fans are content to remain passive spectators with a Christian label. Some of you probably are right now fans of Jesus, passive spectators with a Christian label. But Jesus has plenty of fans at UVA and JMU this year. He doesn't need any more. He's looking at you, addressing you by name and saying, count the cost. Follow me. You're a disciple count the cost. Number two, you're a theologian. Become a good one. When I came to college, I thought of myself as a Christian, but certainly not as a theologian. Uh, but I was blindsided my freshman year in Shorts Hall at JMU by a very difficult roommate situation. And I won't go into all, all the details of it. Um, actually, I, I share a little bit about that situation in the little yellow book you got in your swag bag, I, I guess it's called. Um, but that that freshman roommate situation drove me to God in desperation for the first time in my life. I, had already, I was already a Christian, but my Christian life up until then had been, there hadn't been a lot of speed bumps. This was like a massive barrier in the middle of the road. And it was sort of a, 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 um, a fork in the road moment. Am I going to follow myself or am I going to follow God? And I was so desperate for his help hour by hour, day by day, because this roommate situation was so difficult that I just, I just uh, in his grace, I, I dove into his word desperately for the first time. 
See, everyone is a theologian, which just simply means a, a student of God. Uh, um, actually, someone with, uh, with a, an opinion about God. If you have an opinion about God at all, you're doing theology. If, if you, the moment you think or say anything about him or her or it or whatever God is to you, you are doing theology. It may not be good theology, but you're doing theology. So don't hear me say you're a theologian and think, what is this guy talking about? You know, is he just saying this because he went to seminary? No, I'm saying every single person is doing theology because we all have some kind of conception about God. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about any person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. In Psalm 111, verse 2, you can just write down the reference in if you want. Psalm 111:2. There's a verse that I never noticed for many years, but when I first read it, it, it really struck me. The psalmist says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Well, that's not the verb I expected. Great are the works of the Lord, praised by all who delight in them. But no, the word is studied. We study what we love, don't we? I mean, when I was a kid, I, I studied Michael Jordan statistics. Um, I still know an embarrassing amount of my, you know, Michael Jordan's scoring averages from the late 1980s. I studied stats not because I somehow loved statistics or had a passion for math. I didn't, trust me but it's because I loved Jordan. I studied statistics because I loved him. Studying God is worth your time, and we need to aim to know him accurately. So imagine if, if you were to ask me about my wife, Matt, too bad Megan can't be here. Um, tell me a little bit about her, and I, would, and I were to just start gushing. Oh my goodness, she's the greatest woman I've ever known. She is from Oregon. Uh, she has beautiful red hair. Um, and she hates chocolate. Just gushing. Would that honor my chocolate-loving brunette wife who hails from Virginia? No. Even if I was, like, tearing up in my gushing, it wouldn't honor her because it would be built on a fiction. It would be built on a falsehood. Why then are we so careless and indifferent about how we think and talk about the king of the universe? Why are we less careful, less precise when it comes to God than when it comes to describing man? In Paul's letter to the Romans, um, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, are the, the, the deep end of the theological pool, okay? The, these are three of the most weighty, complex chapters in the whole Bible. And yet Paul concludes like this. This is the very end of Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Is that how you end emails? Me neither. And, and the Apostle Paul was not a guy given to poetry. He was an unbelievable intellectual who can confuse us. Even the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 says that sometimes Paul can be hard to understand, which really encourages me. But here this guy is, Paul, breaking into song. If you've ever heard the word doxology, it's just a fancy word for worship. The goal of theology is doxology. We study him to worship him because theology is intensely practical. Trust me, when suffering crashes into your life, which it will, and the bottom falls out, you're either going to have something solid to stand on or not. Figuring out what you believe about God and his sovereignty and figuring out what you believe about how his sovereignty relates to suffering is not something to figure out when the suffering hits. You prepare for the bad days during the good ones. And these college years are a time for you to go deep in your knowledge of God and his word. Talk to your uh, your staff about maybe books that they would recommend you read, which would deepen and enrich your view of God. So whether you want to be or not, you are already a theologian. My challenge is that you would start becoming a good one this year, not for the sake of mere knowledge, but for the sake of deeper worship. Number three, you're a Christian submit to a church. They, they say hindsight is, is 2020, you know, and, and, and I, I, I'm just going to level with you here. This is something which I did not get in college. If there's anything I wish I had understood in college, it is what I'm about to say to you. Now, I wasn't dumb enough in college to have ever said, I love Jesus, but not the church. I attended church every Sunday throughout college. I appreciated church. But honestly, I was living a church-optional Christianity. It wasn't, I love Jesus, but not the church. It was, I love Jesus, but don't absolutely need the church. I didn't think that the Christian life was the churched life, and the churched life was the Christian life. If I, had, if I had walked into a Christian bookstore and had seen two sections, church and another section over here, Christian living, which is, by the way, how it's set up in a bookstore, that would have made perfect sense to me. Now that annoys me because there should be no distinction. You can't be successful in Christian living apart from the context of a healthy local church. And I'll just quote your own poets to you, as Paul did in Acts 17. Okay, I'll quote Crew's Knowing God Personally booklet to you and say that at the very end, there's an image of an isolated 
log, an isolated ember that if removed from the fire pit will be snuffed out. And so many Christians are trying to live their Christian life, just them and Jesus, and that is not going to last. That's not going to last. Um, the, now, here I am at a college, it's not like I'm on a church retreat. I'm at a college ministry retreat, and I'm up here talking about something as old-fashioned sounding as church membership. You better believe it, okay? They don't have to invite me back. Uh, no, actually, I, the, Jerry, I know, at least, I can't speak for the other staff, Jerry wants me to talk about this, okay? Christ, when, when you hear the term church membership, I wonder what you think. I'm going to tell you where that language comes from, okay? I'm going to read for you just a couple verses. You can turn there if you want to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Starting in verse 12. For even as, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, in college I would have read that and thought, great, I believe all that. There's nothing that interesting. And if you had said, well, Matt, that's membership. Did you not see the word there? Members, many members, members. That's church membership. I would have been like, oh, no, it's not. This is talking about the universal church. All Christians everywhere scattered across time and space. I was dead wrong. Look at verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Who in the letter to the Corinthians is you? Is that all Christians everywhere? Well, eventually, yes, but 1 Corinthians 1.1, to the church at Corinth, Paul is addressing a local church, and he's saying you are the body of Christ. You are the whole thing in miniature. You're not just part of the body of Christ. You are an outpost of the whole body of Christ in Corinth. So the one body, many members thing is not talking about all Christians everywhere. It's talking about a local church. And I can actually make that case even more strongly when I, if I were to have the time to show you that in the context of chapters 11 to 14, there's a reverberating drumbeat in 1 Corinthians, when you come together as a church, when you come together as a church, when you come together as a church, when you come together as a church. And so this idea of one body, many members, has to do with local church membership primarily. See, one of the, the, the reasons why I would have struggled with this in college is because of an assumption I had. I assumed that whenever I came across the word church in my English New Testament, it's the Greek word ecclesia, translated as church, that it was referring to one of two things. That it was referring either to Christians in the plural, okay, just ordinary English, 
dog, dogs, cat, cats, Christian, church. It's just the way you refer to Christians in the plural. Or, as I said earlier, that it was referring to all believers everywhere. But when I began studying what the Bible actually says about this church, I discovered something staggering. Out of the 110 occurrences of the word ecclesia, church, in the New Testament, how many? 110. Guess how many are referring to a specific local church? 97. That's over 90% of the occurrences of the word church are talking about First Baptist or First Presbyterian or Crosslink, an actual local church. So what is a church, and specifically submitting to a church, have to do with following Jesus? The answer, according to much of Christian culture, is not much, but the answer, according to your Bible, is everything. I mean, imagine you're drafted onto a pro sports team, and you get drafted in the first round, and you're so excited, and you, you think, okay, what do I do next? Uh, I should probably report to the person with ultimate authority in this organization. So you go into the office of the owner of the team. What is the owner going to tell you? The person with ultimate authority. He's going to say, welcome to the team. Report to the head coach. So the one with ultimate authority is going to send you to the one with delegated authority and tell you to submit to him or her. In the same way, when you get saved, you report, as it were, to the one with ultimate authority in the universe. You report to King Jesus, but guess what he says to you? Report to a church. Submit to me by submitting your life to a church. Church membership is less like membership at Costco. You have Costco here? Or is it, or is it Sam's Club? Okay. It, church membership is, is less like membership at Costco and more like citizenship in a kingdom. And by the way, let me just anticipate one objection. You may be thinking, okay, Matt, but you're, why can't I fulfill these biblical passages just by being a faithful attender of a church like you were in college. Why do I have to be a member? Why do I have to join? And I would even go far as saying you need to join a church in the place where you're living, not just keeping your membership back at home where no one is seeing you or knowing your life or keeping you accountable. That's meaningless church membership. That's a name on a, on a roster. I'm talking about real, living, meaningful church membership where you know and are known and held accountable as you seek to live the Christian life. Okay, why does it have to be membership? Well, think about it this way. It's like the difference between my finger and my wedding ring, okay? My ring is closely attached to my body. You could say that my ring is a faithful attender of my body. But if my ring falls off, I'm fine. If my finger comes off, there's actually a word for that in the English language. It has been dismembered. The one body, many member uh, uh, image from 1 Corinthians 12 is actually beautiful news because guess what it means? It means that you are not a mere piece of jewelry on the body of Christ. You are not meant to be a ring on the finger of Christ. You are meant to be vitally connected to his body in a church. 
So when you think church membership, don't think Costco. Now, I want to just end by, you know, I'm not so dumb that I don't realize I'm at a crew retreat. So I want to end by just talking briefly about how crew relates to the church. Just some quick observations I'll, I'll tick off. Number one, crew serves the church by being a unique vehicle for evangelism on campus. You are like the stormtroopers sent out onto a college campus and can accomplish many things that your pastors and fellow church members cannot. So crew serves the church by reaching a future generation of leaders in a specific place. Crew should support and supplement your involvement in church, not replace it. So think of crew like a funnel. Uh, discipling relationships within crew are great, but you want to use crew in any Christian organization to help funnel people into a healthy local church, a funnel system where they can be cared for and held accountable in a more formal way and get used to living that adult Christian life I talked about last night so that once they graduate, they're used to orbiting their life around a church. Byron Strawn, is he still the uh, director of theological development for the Mid-Atlantic region? At some point, that was his title-ish. Okay, Byron Strawn, longtime crew staff, okay? He has a wonderful article in which he compared the relationship between church and parachurch. Para means alongside, so crew, IV, the Gospel Coalition, seminaries, these are all parachurch organizations. I'm not against those. I'm employed by one. But he distinguishes between the church and the parachurch by, by saying it's sort of like the difference between um, fa a family and a soccer team. So a soccer team, let's think about some things that are, that are true of a soccer team. It is temporary. Uh, it has a very narrow and specific purpose. You just want to win soccer games. You're not trying to change the world. You just want to win soccer games. You have similar demographics, usually same gender, always basically the same age. And it's optional. You don't have to play soccer. But if you're a Christian, the church is not temporary. It's permanent, like a family. A family is all-defining, all-embracing. There's people unlike you. There are siblings, parents, grandparents, crazy uncles. Trust me, people unlike you that maybe you wouldn't have naturally chosen. A family is also non-negotiable. There's no family practice that ends at 530 or family season that ends after the championship game. It's almost like a, a crew can, is like a rowboat that can, that can get into little coves with... Um, uh, and, and, can, and can change directions, can be nimble, can do things on campus that a church can't. A church is more like an ocean liner. And it's great to be on a rowboat and to be reaching pockets of a place in the world for the glory of Christ. But you can't live on a rowboat. You can't live on a rowboat. And the church is the only organization Jesus founded on earth in which he is personally invested. So crew is wonderful. I'm a huge fan of crew, and I'm so personally indebted to this ministry. But Jesus did not promise in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell would never prevail against crew. 
He never promised that the gates of hell would never prevail against the Gospel Coalition. Crew or TGC could close up shop tomorrow and the kingdom of Jesus would march along just fine. But he did promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. God's reputation is bound up with the church in a way it's not with any other Christian organization because he's made promises to the church that he hasn't to a seminary or a conference or a campus ministry or a Christian website. Now, let's wrap up. I'm happy to talk about some of this stuff with you guys today. Uh, feel free to come and, and grab me if, if you have questions about anything I've said. Um, but th th this talk is admittedly uh, a little more topical tonight. We're going we're gonna to dive more into one passage of Scripture. But this is the shape of the Christian life, following Jesus. You're a disciple, so you need to count the cost. You're a theologian, so you need to become a good one. And you're a Christian, so you need to submit your life to a church. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that uh, this is actually good news, God, that, that because you love us, you have structured the Christian life in such a way that we can't live it alone. Lord, I pray that everyone here would bow their knee to King Jesus and then live out their entire Christian life by sticking with you when it gets difficult, by coming to a greater understanding and appreciation for your word and by orbiting their entire life around a healthy Bible preaching, Jesus exalting, gospel centered local church. And it's in Jesus name I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.